It's time, you know it's time. Welcome back to Dark Heights. Last week, we listened to part one of The Nightfall. Everything you've heard this season has led to this. But while Tess and Majo are in the thick of it, so too are several other characters from the season, and you're about to catch up with them right after this. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. So let's get back to the party. Just be careful who you dance with because you never know who is going to crash. This is Dark Heights, episode 14. Hanlon. One. The first time I met Barbara Bellamy was in rehearsals for Danger Stranger, a made-for-TV movie that we filmed in 1994. Two, Danger Stranger aired on NBC in 1995. Three, I found the DVD a few years later in the dollar bin at Blockbuster Video on Riverside and Fulton. Four, that's how Danger Stranger is in my personal library. Maybe I've watched it a few times. Five, it was my very last role before being cast in the lead for City Midnight. Six, a true story crime thriller. Danger Stranger depicts the events of the hitchhiker murders that took place in Spokane, Washington in 1988 and 1989. Seven, I played the leading detective on the case, John Thomas, while Barbara played the mother of the last victim, whose persistence and belief that her daughter is still alive leads John Thomas to follow the clues and rescue the daughter from the killer's basement dungeon. 8. I forget the name of the girl who played the daughter, but she was very talented. 9. I know that she struggled with addiction and eventually made a handful of porn videos, and then no one saw her again. 1. Barbara and I began a relationship at that time. Two, she was 31 and I was 27. 
Three, she was the person who introduced me to Stanzidental Meditation Monitoring, or SMM. Four, however, she very quickly dropped SMM in favor of any number of other self-help schemes that were easier. Five, all of my personal troubles began during that second season of City Midnight. Six, as I became more difficult to live with, Barbara and I stopped seeing each other. Seven, then she became pregnant with Tess. Eight, it was SMM that ultimately allowed me to reclaim my life after City Midnight had been canceled, and I checked myself into a holistic retreat where I spent three months monitoring my thoughts. Nine, Barbara moved to Park Heights when Tess was a baby and Barbara and I attempted more than once over the years to rekindle our relationship without lasting success. One, I joined the board of the Wellness Center when it opened, with the goal of ensuring SMM would be one of the practices funded and nurtured by its operations. Two, Stanzidental Meditation Monitoring is a discipline of thought. Three, it's predicated on this truth that every single thought that achieves inception in the mind is preceded and then followed by an absolute nothingness, which is the absence of being. Four, with discipline and diligent practice, one becomes able to apprehend that nothingness by monitoring the event horizon out of which thoughts achieve inception and beyond which thoughts incur disappearance. Five, Thoughts cascade inwards or downwards from inception in groups of nine, called stanzas. Six. After nine thoughts have occurred, the mind resets itself and begins a new stanza. Seven. Understanding this structure of the mind is a critical first step toward enlightenment. Eight. However, even in daily life, monitoring stanzas of thoughts with discipline is a perfect path to lasting peace. Nine, even in the midst of chaotic events, such as this night of the fundraiser at Arson, I am able to separate my thoughts into stanzas and monitor them from inception to disappearance. One, all of the wellness center groups and practices are here tonight, except for the circle. Two, Melinda looks elegant and beautiful in her evening gown. Three, she complained about having to come to this, but I believe at heart she loves an opportunity to step out of being Dr. Carey, even for one night. Four, our relationship has progressed extremely well, and I've been happy because of it. However, this happiness is in itself a source of worry for me. Five, principal shooting on the City Midnight Revival begins soon. Six, the script is excellent, but it's no surprise since its creator and writer, John J. Wright, is a genius who's finally becoming recognized for what he is. Seven, it's not a reboot, but a continuation of the story set 20 years later, and Detective Rorick Anderson has spent these years in a criminal asylum, wrongfully framed for murders he did not commit. Eight, in preparation for principal shooting, I committed to growing this beard that I despise. Nine, I'm terrified of working on City Midnight again because of what happened to me last time 
and I'm frightened that I will lose this new relationship with Melinda Carey as a result. 1. Nasreen informs me that the masked and costumed celebrities have been asked to converge at the dance pavilion, where we'll reveal ourselves one by one, and those guests who place the highest correct bets on our identities will collect their prizes. 2. I'll admit it's hot and uncomfortable in this full-length mask and hood and robes. 3. The way people have been looking at me, I'm not so sure it was a good idea to go as the Grim Reaper. 4. The scythe is much heavier than I thought it would be. 5. I see the black swan ahead of me. I hurry up to catch up so that she and I have a moment to walk together. 6. Earlier, when we were gathering in the mansion before putting on the costumes, I was surprised that she was there. I realized I hadn't seen her in some time. 7. I think it's a great sign that Barbara felt well enough to join us. 8. Can't wait to get out of this damn bird costume, she says as I catch up to her. And then she says, I thought you were going to be in a costume, Devin. 9. I have a moment of confusion before I understand that she's making a joke at my expense. 1. And so we're gathered at the dance pavilion, and so was most of everyone who's here at the fundraiser, crowding in. Two. Nasreen, who does everything at the wellness center, is MC for this unveiling of the celebrities, and she's doing a great job. Three. This celebrity masquerade is a fantastic success, and I'll have to remember to thank Marius Severin's daughter for the idea. Four. However, I don't see the Severins in the crowd, not Marius himself nor either of his kids. Five. Barbara leans into me and whispers, Do you see Tess anywhere? Six. I search the crowd as Nasreen gets the fundraiser guests to give the celebrities a round of applause for their hard work tonight. Seven. I wanted her to be here, Barbara says, because she'll be so proud of me when I take off the costume and show everyone who I am. Eight. As I tell her that I don't see Tess in the crowd, Barbara makes a strange, smacking, kissing sound, repeating it rapidly, and when she speaks again, she sounds desperate and afraid. Nine. Where is she, Devin? Where is she? Why isn't she here? Bradley Ledler. She makes me put my knife against her soft, white throat. How I want to press it in. A million times I see the blade go in. Oh, Tess, oh, Tess, I don't know why you're fighting. Can't you see that it was you who came to me? You're mine now. You're mine. My body over top of hers. She stopped moving. I have to take my knife away before I make a mistake. Why do you want me to hurt you? No, no, my head, not again. You know I don't want to hurt you, Tess. I couldn't hurt you. I love you. Werewolves, their psychic attacks are relentless. My head is going to explode. I have to scream. 
I should have known the werewolves would oppose this union. How do they know I'm here? How am I going to get to Rorik Anderson when they're in my head as strong as this and I can hardly move? Why am I so weak? It's laughable that I'm here and it's all happening and I'm too weak to see it through. I'm laughing now. Is it my voice that says, I think you'd better run away? Or is it the werewolves? I was trying to say, I think you'd better get ready. And then the words, run away, came out instead. And Tess did it. She's running away now. I can't move. I pushed the tip of my grandfather's USMC K-bar through the sleeve of my coat and into my arm. Maybe it wasn't me who did that, but it helped. Suddenly I know. Suddenly I see her. The werewolf. It's a girl. She's somewhere nearby, lying on a bench in a beautiful garden. Look at her. She's shaking like she's having a seizure. There's a man kneeling next to her, holding on to her. I see you, skinny little girl. I know who you are. You're not human. Werewolf, you're the first one I'm going to kill. After I claim Tess for union. Get up. Everyone here has to die tonight. Now I know. All these people have to be erased. Tess is fighting me. I'm going to have to hurt her before I can claim her for union. I don't want to, but I'm going to have to. It's all up to me now. Rorik Anderson waits for me. Convergence has started. It's quiet. Tess is hiding. I know how to move in the trees without making a sound. I've been trained. There. Tess is hiding right there. She could have kept running. She could have got away. Instead, she stopped. She chose to stay in the woods. It means she can sense. It means she wants me to hurt her. Oh, I feel so happy. For the first time in such a long time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Priya. Fragment of login update G4DD87. As we followed the black Mercedes... Madero was on the phone with his Division 13 contact. 
Yes, he said. It's positive identification. The Mayfair house bed and breakfast on Mayfair Street and Beach Boulevard. We're following him now. Yes, I'm giving you a green light to go. I repeat, green light to go. To me, he said, you're too close to that Mercedes. I know how to execute a tail, I snapped. The black Mercedes transported Gabriel Majot to a mansion above the town of Park Heights, where a very public event was underway, some kind of formal black-tie reception to which Majot himself arrived in full masquerade costume, including a partial mask, top hat, and ivory-handled cane. Madero was certain it was him, despite the mask and the costume. By all logic, it had to be him. I drove past the mansion and pulled over onto the side of the road. Madero, turned awkwardly right around in the seat, took more pictures with his extremely old camera. He mistrusted digital technology as the black Mercedes was ushered through the gate and onto the grounds. What the hell is going on here, I said to him. I'm not sure. Why is he dressed like that? None of the other guests are in costume. I don't know. Madero put the camera down. Do you think there are other exits from this estate? There might be a service road in the east, but essentially this property borders right up against Topanga State Park on all sides except this one. Madero glanced at me. You seem surprisingly well-informed about the place. I took a tour. You what? The day after we arrived. Madero was staring at me. It's historical. I thought it was something I should see. Arson was built in 1914 by William Randolph Hearst, though he sold it in 1919 to Sangster Quince, the silent film producer. Hearst never even set foot inside it, and then he went on to build Hearst Castle in San Simeon. Fascinating, Madero said. We waited outside the estate, in the car on the side of the road. The sky was darkening quickly after the sun had set. What do we do, I said. I'm thinking, Madero said. Do we go in there? We're not dressed for it. I think we have to. You said we wouldn't engage. We can't risk losing him. I think he might be using this event to cover his escape from us, in which case he might already be gone. Where are the triads, then? I thought you gave Division 13 green light to move on Majot. To sweep the bed and breakfast, yes, but nothing more than that. Call them back. Get them here now. Madero shook his head. I can't. What do you mean? He didn't answer my question. It's up to us, Priya. We have to go in. I think you're wrong. We're crashing this formal party and we'll stick right out. He'll see us coming. We don't have a choice. Of course we have a choice. That's enough, Agent Meta. As the ranking officer here, it's my decision. We're going in. And so... Despite everything Madero had previously asserted, the danger of this course of action, the needless recklessness, the possibility of a negative outcome, we did it anyway. We moved to engage the warlock. Kevin. It was starting to look like Trist was a no-show for their gig at this swanky fundraiser affair called Nightfall. What was there left to do but drink? With beer and wine and champagne in abundance all over, I just helped myself. You can't blame me. 
I had started at anxious, gone on to upset, moved over to angry, settled at last on not giving a shit. A certain amount of alcohol will do that to you. I was set up, ready to go. I'd done my part. If Trist wanted to play tonight, all they had to do was show up. As I walked around the mansion, I saw there was something going on in the biggest of the tent pavilions on the grounds. I heard Nasreen's voice on a PA system, and then everyone was applauding. Most of the guests here tonight had pushed themselves in there to see the goings-on, so I was almost on my own out in the early dark. There was a crazy light show being projected onto the front of the mansion. How long had that been going on? It was pretty amazing. The whole thing was pretty amazing. I guess that's what happens when you get a billionaire to throw your fundraiser. I had recognized a lot of people from the wellness center. And admittedly, it was weird to run into my therapist, Dr. Carey, all dolled up and decked out and looking actually quite hot for an older lady. Was I supposed to pretend not to notice that? But now that I had thought about it, wasn't it always going to be there? It's not like I could take back being momentarily attracted to my therapist. No, it wasn't exactly attraction. I'd just been admiring her elegance. Man, I thought, this better not be a problem going forward, because I need these sessions with her if I'm going to function normally even a little bit. Earlier, I'd also bumped into Nasreen. I asked her if anyone from the circle had shown up. No, she'd said. No one from the circle RSVP'd, so I left them off the guest list. Yeah, of course they didn't come. They're bad, bad people up to no good, and they're not taking nights off like the rest of us. In the way that smokers joins for a cigarette, I wanted music. A cigarette wouldn't have been so bad either. The absence of music was painful to me. Honestly, I thought long and hard about just going home. It's the melomania. Sometimes it's unbearable. I imagined what I'd do at home, sitting cross-legged on the floor, headphones on, pressing shuffle on the laptop MP3 player. What song would it be? Maybe one of White Mask's doom-heavy apocalyptic epics. Or better yet, the turntable. What album would I carefully remove from its jacket, slip out of the sleeve, position on the platter, then swing the tone arm across and drop the needle gently down onto the vinyl? Last night, I had been listening to Disintegration by The Cure, and that's when France came over. It was late. The sudden booming knock on the door made me jump right out of my body. I had been lying on the floor, listening to the music. I thought it was probably my mother. She pounded on the door in much the same way sometimes, so it was a surprise to throw the door open and see France out there on the stairs. There was rain in the air, and he was slouched there at the top of the stairs, looking miserable. Hey, France, um, what are you doing here? I said as I let him in. I recognized the tendrils of anxiety curling around my thoughts, squeezing tight. Was I being awkward with France? Was I welcoming? I was delighted to see him, but maybe I wasn't showing it. Would he leave? Oh, wow, he said, taking his shoes off and his jacket. The cure. This is so good. Is everything okay? My own anxiety subsided. He was acting strangely. There was something in his voice. Can we just listen to this for a while? 
Uh, yeah, of course. Come in. Come on in, I stuttered. There's beer in the fridge. Want one? France had stretched himself out on the floor in more or less the same spot I had been. For some reason, I imagined a chalk outline of my body and France on top of it. Sure, he said distantly. I always want a beer. I put the beer next to him on the floor and then I flopped down onto the couch. For a long time, neither of us moved at all. Neither of us drank our beers. We just stayed like we were, listening to disintegration. I remembered being over at Tessa's house in high school, pretending to work together on a research project for social studies. We'd stayed up long after her mom had gone to bed. In Tessa's room, listening to this same album for the first time, all the way through, from the broken wind chime intro of Plain Song to the wheezing detuned accordion outro of Untitled. Not sadness, not loneliness, something else. Knowing that, long before you had any idea about sadness or loneliness, someone else had already gone into that darkness, and they'd come back better for it. They delivered this music for all of us to follow, unafraid. We got a D on that assignment. I remember my mom losing her mind about that. And Charlie Mill had done this incredible ten-page retrospective of Civil War battles with maps, and he'd done it on his own because no one would ever be his partner except me, and I had chosen Tess that time. France sat up. He reached for the beer and took a long drink from the bottle. I think White Mask is over, he said. What? I lost my shit on the guys tonight. It was pretty bad. You're always freaking out on them. They're used to it. And frankly, they deserve it most of the time. Not like this, though. Franz took in a deep breath. I'm angry. I don't know why I'm this angry. Did something happen? I asked uncertainly. France wiped tears out of his eyes with a sudden violent gesture, a wrenching of his hand across his face like a presentiment of self-harm. You're not listening to me. I'm telling you what's wrong, but you're not listening. Okay, I said stupidly, only belatedly understanding that France, in a bad state, had come to me for help. Me? Not that I knew what to do or say. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm listening. I am. Go on. Don't say the wrong thing, I thought. Please don't say the wrong thing. He's so volatile. France grinned at me suddenly. You're fucking hopeless, Kevin. I sighed a deep, protracted sigh. Sorry. But your uselessness makes me feel better. You're welcome. France got up and went to the fridge for another beer. He stood there with the fridge door open and the cold air billowing around him. Then he snapped around and stalked back toward me. It's just that white mask isn't enough. I want to change people. I want people to leave the shows utterly destroyed. I want them to have to change their lives because of what they just experienced. That's what I want. And instead of that, people just shrug it off like they've been watching the Disney Channel. I ask someone... What did you think of the show? 
and they nod politely, and they tell me, oh, it was good, oh, I liked it. Franz shook his head. That means I failed. I liked it. That means White Mask has failed. You've got all those fans, though, France, I said. More and more all the time, people are responding, they are. It's not enough. He was pacing back and forth across the room, delineating limitations. I said, it has to be enough. You can't expect everyone to instantly love what you're doing. It takes time. Most people won't admit they even know about or like something until they know it's safe to do so, until there's thousands of other people who've already done so. Franz had started to cry again. I feel like I'm at war with the world and everyone in it all the time. It would be so much easier not to do this. Feeling sorry for yourself won't help, I said. Is that what I'm doing? I don't know what you're doing right now. Maybe. At least sit down, Franz, for fuck's sake. All right. He deposited himself on the couch next to me. Close to me. You're giving me some straight talk here, aren't you? Your talent is... I searched for the right words. It's undeniable. But I think you have to be careful about your intensity. What are you saying? Burning brightly and burning out? I think it might be a problem for you. Suddenly, Franz was laughing again. Kevin, you don't understand anything at all. Not one little scrap of understanding about anything. I didn't know what to say. I thought I'd been helping, telling him when he needed to hear. Now I wasn't sure. And when I slowly considered the things he had been telling me, I found he was right. I didn't understand what had made him so upset, or why. Franz shifted on the couch until he was more prone, lying with his head on the cushion, his feet in their gray socks sliding down until they pressed up against the side of my leg. I am actually quite tired, he mumbled. Then he yawned, and I yawned. After a few minutes, it seemed like both of us were about to fall asleep. Then Franz stirred and checked to see if I was still awake over on my side of the couch. I want to ask you something, he said, prodding me with one foot. What? You and Tess, in high school, you had some kind of saying, like a safe word signal that you needed the other person. Yeah, we called it zero hour. Yes, I always liked that. Zero hour. I was always jealous of that. And all the time you spent with Tess, I always wanted to be part of that. Holy cow, I thought. Where was this coming from? I know I really kept the two of you apart, I said carefully. Why? I think I was protecting myself, keeping these friendships separate in case they fell apart. If you and Tess were friends, too, I thought maybe you'd both figure out eventually I wasn't worth much, and I'd lose both of you. Oh my god! France exclaimed. Is that what it was? That's so pathetic! 
I thought you were keeping me apart from Tess because she was so cool and I was so boring. Well, yeah, there was that too. I knew it, he said, laughing. The Franz Ariemi I knew in high school was almost a completely different person. I'd taken him under my wing as soon as he had appeared in class, just moved to California from Nigeria. He was quiet, watchful, intelligent, easy to be with, easy to please, willing to do just about anything at any time. In many ways, he was my replacement for Charlie Mill, who had many of the same qualities. Charlie and I had become more and more estranged. There had been the incident with his uncle in the Evergreen Motel. After that, when I talked to him, I think I had unconsciously begun to adopt everyone else's creeped-out attitude about him. Charlie was just getting weirder and weirder. He was not showing up at school for a day here and there, and then for a few days, for a week, for longer. And one day, he disappeared entirely. Then Franz, after high school. I was in classes at LMU, this was before I dropped out, and I got a text from Franz. We hadn't seen each other in a while, so it was a mild surprise. I read his text a few times over. He said... He was in a new band and wanted me to check them out. France? In a band? What? So I went to the rehearsal space in the valley. Even before White Mask played some of their new songs for me, I was stunned into disbelief. Franz had embraced me warmly the moment he saw me, as if no time had passed since we'd hung out. His smile and laughter were the same, but everything else had changed. He had lost all of his weight, he looked like someone who designed clothes for a living and picked out what he was wearing. When he got behind the mic, in front of White Mask, it was like a torrent of rage possessed him and used him and made him into something exalted. That's what I should have told him last night, I thought. I should have told him that music made him exalted. But it was too late. Typical of me to think of the right thing to say only much later on. In the morning, Franz and I were in my bed together. I didn't remember having moved there from the couch or Franz having come with me. We were still in our clothes from the night before. I had curled up into him, my head against the side of his chest. A week before he was, I listened to the rising and falling of his sleep slow breathing. I could not have moved from where I was, even if I had wanted to. And now I was across the rest of that day, standing in front of the great mansion, Arson. Shapes of light and silhouettes of dark rose and fell across the house in a dizzying display. And I was the only one watching, and I missed him. I wanted him with me. I felt terrified of what would happen when I saw him again. Hey, Kevin, someone said to me. We found the place. Our cabbie had no idea. Trist. They were here after all. Guys, I said. You made it. I was getting worried. Come on, let me show you where the stage is. Or no, let's get some beer first before we do anything else. You guys still planning on starting with that cover of OMD? I led them across the lawn. Now I was excited after all, 
After we'd set up our gear, after they'd played a quick sound check and I'd adjusted the board, as people were gathering in from the darkness beyond the lights of the stage, the band would begin their set. And there would be more music in the world. Mystery celebrities, FBI agents, uninvited guests who see werewolves everywhere. How do I get invited to parties like this? As promised, the puzzle pieces are falling into place. It's still anyone's guess what the final picture will look like, but I, for one, can't wait to find out. I also have to say I love that Miller has continued to use the Rashomon effect, where you get to see so many different distinct perspectives of what's going on at this party. Very intriguing. All right, we've come too far not to see how it all turns out, so be here next week for the climactic conclusion of Nightfall. Until then, I'm Pan Bandu. Thanks for joining us for Dark Heights. You're listening to Fear, Dark Heights, created and produced by Realm your portal to another world. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. Produced by Haley Wagreich, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Original music by Chris Miller. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Fear is produced by Mary Asadolahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Pun Bandu. Audio editing by Corey Barton and Felicia Dominguez. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Fear by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>